You're listening to the Acts, How the Gospel Changes the World series preached by Pastor Dan Christians at Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. Well, we're in the final sermon on our series in the book of Acts. And on Monday, as I sat somberly in my office, I decided to get my calculator out and do some calculations. And I, I looked at my outlines and everything I'd gone through so far, and I realized that in the around four years that I've been in the book of Acts, I've done about 140 sermons, 677 pages of outline, 220,000 words. And I have to be honest, after all those years and all that time and all those hours, I'm not sure I'm ready for it to end. I think I'm I'm difficult to finding closure. And part of that is because the book of Acts doesn't really provide closure for us. It, it doesn't wrap itself up in a nice bow. As we read, it feels like you're watching a movie, and then at that final scene, when you're coming to the conclusion of what's going to happen to the Apostle Paul that we've been leading up to the entire time, the power cuts off. And it's like, Luke, what's going on? I mean, I mean this is like to be continued. Where is second Acts? You look through your Bible and you have 2 Corinthians, you have 2 Thessalonians, you have all these seconds, but 2 Acts is missing. It seems like that part of the story just got lost. Why don't we have it? And for me, at least when I look at that, it, it, I find it difficult to not hear the end of Paul's story. It, because in one sense, it feels like that's the story that Luke has been telling since Acts chapter 13. But then I thought about that for a while. I thought, what was really Luke's purpose? What was he writing for? And, and if we look back in, in the book of Luke, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, verse 3, we find out that he's writing to a man named Theophilus, and he's writing because he's gained a perfect understanding of all the things from the very first. So he has studied this, he's, he's asked all the people that knew about it, he's found all the information he could find out about the history of Jesus and then of the early church, and because he's found all that out, he says, I wrote that thou mightest know the certainty of those things wherein thou hast been instructed. I want you, Theophilus, whoever you are, and we don't know who Theophilus was, but whoever you are, and, and as a believer, I want you, believer, to know the certainty of the things that you've been taught. The things that Jesus Christ said and that he did, I want you to be certain of them because it's on them that you must base your life. And that was his purpose right from the very beginning. And so, while we might go to the book of Acts, and we might say, well, Paul's Luke is telling this story about Paul, that's not his purpose, that wasn't his goal. Now, Paul does fit into how the gospel went forth, but his goal was so that Theophilus could hear the history of, of Jesus, of what he said and did, hear the history of how the church took Jesus' message, took the story of Jesus, and spread it through the world, and write that down. And so, if, his, if that's his purpose then it almost seems fitting that Luke ends mid-stride. That we're just right in the middle of the story, and then he seems to decide to stop writing. Luke is not... Have we read his writing as we've looked at Luke's gospel and, and the book of Acts? We find that Luke is a brilliant man. He doesn't do things haphazardly. He, he didn't just decide, oh, I'm going to stop writing there. Um, I'm kind of tired of it now. It wasn't. He did this purposefully. And I think the purpose for us is we're supposed to see that this is the work of Christ, and it continues. And it's not about Paul, it is about Jesus, it's about the teachings of Jesus. And so where he ends, as we'll see tonight, is actually very fitting. So let us pray, 
and then we'll get into the last couple of verses. Heavenly Father, Lord, I, I love you, Lord. I thank you for the series that, that I've gone through. And Lord, just, Father, for me, how much you've taught me um, in this time in, in your word. And God, I pray that as we conclude tonight, that you would speak to our hearts. I pray that you would convict my heart, convict others here of our need to do what Paul was doing, to confidently and clearly share the gospel, to not use excuses, uh, Lord, but to understand our purpose, what we've been empowered to do. Lord, I pray that we would take the message of Jesus on the cross, dying for sinners, to the world around us. We love you, Father. I pray you bless this evening. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If we were to plot out the purpose and the success of that purpose throughout the book of Acts, I think we could do that in about seven summary statements. So before we get into these last two verses, because these last two verses provide for us the final summary statement. So as we go through this, I think we'd find that it begins in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. That we have this statement of the purpose of what Acts is going to be about. That the Holy Ghost is going to come upon the disciples, that they will be witnesses unto me, this is Jesus speaking, so unto Jesus in both Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost part of the earth. That is what is going to happen in the book of Acts very succinctly. Holy Spirit empowers the witness of the disciples, not just the apostles, but all the disciples of Christ to go into the world and, and share the gospel. And then we go through the book of Acts and we see that happening. There we find Jesus' command and then we find Pentecost and the gospel begins to go out to the world. They're speaking in tongues, sharing the gospel. We find Various happenings in Jerusalem where a lame man is healed and they're in the temple preaching the gospel and they're put in prison. They get back out and they're preaching the gospel and, and here the focus is on Jerusalem, but it's still on the message that they're supposed to bring, that Jesus has died for sinners, that he's died and rose again. Then we move in Acts chapter 6 verse 7 and we get another summary statement. It's, and the word of God increased and the number of disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly and a great company of priests were obedient to the faith. So here we find that that work in Jerusalem, it was profitable, it was successful. The word of God was increasing. And we already have seen a great amount of Jewish antagonism toward the gospel, toward Christianity. But despite that persecution, the word of God is increasing. And even some of the Jewish priests are being saved. Glory to God for that. But it's in Jerusalem. And so in the next few chapters, we find that the first martyr is Stephen. He's, he's not one of the apostles. He's just a deacon in the church of Jerusalem. And then we find Philip, another deacon, taking the gospel to Samaria and, and a revival happening in the city of Samaria. A, another wonderful time. And then we have Saul, who's the persecutor of the church, gets gloriously saved on the road to Damascus. And so in Acts chapter 9, verse 31, we get another summary statement. The gospel has now gone from Jerusalem. Now it's branched out to Samaria. And the apostle Paul has been saved. And it says, in Acts 9.31, Then had the churches rest throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria, and were edified, and walking in the fear of the Lord, and in the comfort of the Holy Ghost, were multiplied. The church is growing. The Holy Ghost is working. Wonderful things are happening. But it's still limited to this area of Palestine. And then we find that the gospel goes out to the first Gentile. Officially, to the first Gentile. The Apostle Peter brings the gospel to Cornelius, the Roman centurion. And Cornelius is saved, his house is saved, they speak in tongues, they, they're filled with the Spirit. After that, we find Barnabas takes Paul, previously Saul, the one who's converted in Acts chapter 9, he takes him to the first primarily Gentile church in Antioch to help with the church there. 
And in Acts chapter 12, the apostle James is beheaded for his faith. And so all these things are happening, and the gospel is starting to branch out past those regions of Palestine. And then in Acts chapter 12, verse 24, even after James is killed, it says, but the word of God grew and multiplied. And from Acts chapter 13 on, it focuses on the missionary journeys of the apostle Paul. We have Paul going out to Asia Minor and taking the gospel on his first missionary journey there. We have many people there being saved. We have, again, a great deal of persecution against him, but the gospel is, is branching out even further. More people are being saved. Acts chapter 16, verse 5, it says, And so were the churches established in the faith and increased in number daily. This mission, despite the, the ongoing persecution, is increasing and growing, and wonderful things are happening because the Holy Spirit's working and it's branching out as Jesus said it should, as his plan was. Paul receives at that time, he goes out on a second missionary journey, he receives the Macedonian vision. And so then we go from Asia Minor all the way into Europe to the churches like uh, Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea and Athens, all those wonderful places. The gospel goes to them, to Corinth. And in Acts chapter 19, verse 20, it says, So mightily grew the word of God and prevailed. The final chapter of the book of Acts deals with Paul's arrest in Jerusalem, his five subsequent trials, and then his tumultuous sea journey to Rome. And we find ourselves now at that final summary statement with now Paul in Rome, chained to a Roman guard, in Roman custody as a prisoner. And that brings us to our text this evening. Acts chapter 28, verse 30. It says, And Paul dwelt two whole years in his own hired house, and received all that came in unto him. Paul is here in Rome. He's in his own hired house. He's got a place that he can stay, that he's renting, he's paying for. But for two years, he's in Rome. From AD 60 to 62, he's renting a house and he's preaching the gospel there. Acts 28, 31, our final summary statement in the, state, the verse that we'll focus on this evening, says he was preaching the kingdom of God and teaching those things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no man forbidding him. Alistair Begg said that Paul was a man with two strings on his bow. It was Jesus, 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 kingdom, kingdom, kingdom. Jesus, 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 kingdom, kingdom, kingdom. And that's how the book of Acts ends. He's preaching the kingdom of God. He's preaching the things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, this is telling for us because as a church, we can look to the entire counsel of God and we could focus on a number of different things. In our lives, we could focus on a lot of things. We could focus on exactly how you're supposed to keep your household. It's an important thing. You could focus on that. You could focus exactly on how you're supposed to defend the gospel, the arguments that you should use and the strategies that work the best. We could focus on what the church should look like. We could focus on so many different things, what music should be like, what our standards should be. We could focus on those things, and those things at times need to be talked about. They need to be addressed. But it's telling for us that what Paul focused on in his ministry was Jesus in the kingdom. That's what he's preaching. That's the emphasis. Anson Vandekamp shared with me something that one of his past preachers had said to him. 
and that it was that you reap a harvest where you place an emphasis. That's true. And so Paul emphasized the gospel, Jesus Christ and the kingdom of God. And it says that he did it with all confidence and no man forbidding him. And again, I think Luke is, Luke is purposeful in ending it this way. He ends it with, with all confidence, no man forbidding him, not just because he decided to stop writing, but because he wanted us to understand that this is what was going on at that time, that Paul was preaching Jesus in the kingdom, and he was doing it in a way where he was not forbidden by any man, that he was not hindered. The word man is actually not there, so it's, he was not hindered, and he was doing it confidently. And what's interesting about this, I think this, this for us, creates a, a, a paradox. It's like, well, this doesn't really make sense to me at this time, because, think about it, think of all the ways right now that Paul was being hindered. If you look at it, doesn't it seem like Paul has already been rejected by the, the whole of Judaism? Some Jews have been saved, but the Jewish synagogues as a whole rejected him. That he was bound as a Roman prisoner. That he was literally handcuffed to another Roman guard all the time, not able to leave the house he was staying in. That sounds like a lot of hindrances. It sounds like there's a lot of excuses there. And yet Luke ends saying he wasn't hindered by any man. That doesn't make any sense. Does it? I mean, except that maybe Luke wasn't talking about Paul being hindered as a person. Maybe it wasn't about whether Paul was able to go out for dinner, whether Paul was able to do all the things that he might want to do, whether Paul was able to go to the soccer game, whether he was able to go to his friend's wedding or, or his funeral or whatever it was. Maybe Paul's freedom wasn't at issue here. Maybe the issue was the gospel. And in that way, he can say honestly that God had put Paul in a situation where though everybody was trying to hinder him, though everybody else was trying to stop the gospel from going forward, though the Jews hated him, though the Romans put him in prison, though he was chained to a Roman guard, literally hands tied, the gospel wasn't hindered. And that, that until they put a sock in his mouth, he was going to confidently preach the gospel. And that's what he did. It is clear in these verses that our sovereign God was working through his wonderful servant to continue the work that he started at the beginning of the book of Acts, or really at the beginning of the Gospels, to tell about the work of Christ, what he did, and what he taught. Well, now the book of Acts ends, and we're left hanging. What happened to the Apostle Paul? We're going to get into an application in just a moment. What I want to do just briefly is satisfy a little bit of your curiosity, if I can. If you're like me, you want to know, okay, what happened to Paul? While Paul was in prison, he wrote four letters. He wrote Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon in those two-year period that he was a prisoner there. And so, in those letters, we can find clues as to what he was doing and what was happening, at least what his mindset was. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 16... He's speaking about his bond. So he's speaking about being in prison. And in verse 19, he says, For I know that this, so my imprisonment, shall turn to my salvation through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. And we might think, well, salvation, he's talking about his being saved. No, he's, he's, that's already happened. He's, he's already saved. He's talking about his salvation from prison, from, from being in his bonds, because he's talking about his bonds in verse 16. And so he believes that their prayers would result in him being freed from prison. In Philippians 2.24, he says, But I trust in the Lord that I also myself shall come to you shortly. So he's, he's sure that God is going to allow him to come to see the Philippian church shortly. 
In Philemon chapter 1, verse 22, which he also wrote during this time, it says, But with all prepare me also lodging, for I trust that through your prayers I shall be given unto you. And we learn a couple of things here. <laughs> we learn that he wanted Philemon to prepare a bed for him, get my room ready, because I'm going to be there soon. But the reason he has this confidence is because he believes in the power of prayer. He says, your prayers mean that I will be given to you. Your prayers for me to be released. I will be there. And so if we're going to play detective a little bit, we might say, okay, well, at that time, Paul seemed like he didn't believe he was heading at least immediately to his death. You read those four books, and we know he's in prison, but we also know that his outlook is, soon I'll be released. I'll be out. And we believe, or at least church historians believe, that he was released at some point. Maybe he was released because there was no charges sent with him. Maybe none of the witnesses decided to show up. Maybe the Roman government realized that they were holding a prisoner for absolutely no reason, paying guards for 24 hours a day for two years already to watch a guy who's really not a danger to society. Whatever the reason was, he's released. And so Paul, for a couple years, maybe two or three or four years here, goes about his business. He writes three letters before he's killed. And in these three letters, it's Titus and First and Second Timothy, and in these three letters, Paul mentions a couple places, for example, Crete, a city that he's never been to, but now he speaks about the city as though he's done ministry there. And so if we put the pieces together, we kind of get the idea that maybe he went and he visited Philippi at, for, at some time, and then he went to Crete, and there was a work started in Crete, and then he's writing the letter to Titus, telling Titus how to pastor the church in Crete that they've started. And so we, we read the book of 1 Timothy and the book of Titus, and now there's no thought of imprisonment. He's not speaking about bonds or prison or anything like that. It, it seems like at this time, he is free doing more missionary work. But then you get to 2 Timothy, and here he's back in prison, and his tone is completely different. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6. He says, For I am now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. That's very different from what he wrote when he was writing the Philippians, right? He says in verse 7, I have fought the good fight, I have finished my course, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them also that love his appearing. Do thy diligence to come shortly unto me. See, now he's not speaking about going to see him. He's speaking about he's finished his course, he's run the race, he's done, that he's ready to be offered. He knows now this is the end of his life. As far as we can tell, Paul is beheaded by Nero for his faith. And that's the end of Paul's story. And if I'm going to satisfy your curiosity that way, that's the best way I can do that. But now that it's satisfied, let's go on to applying the text here in Acts chapter 28. Here we read in, the, in verse 31 that Paul was preaching the kingdom of God and teaching those things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no man forbidding him. That final phrase in the Greek is meta pas parousia akalutos. Bet you're impressed. <laughs> you wouldn't be impressed if you ever spoke to someone that actually spoke Greek and then told you what that really said. But for now, be impressed. <laughs> what we're going to do is we're going to take our application and we're going to hang our application on 
two of those phrases, two of the things he says there. And the first one is this, with all confidence. Paul is preaching the kingdom, he's teaching the things concerned Jesus, and he's doing them with all confidence. You might say, of course he did. Look at Paul's life. He's a confident guy. Everything he did, he did with confidence. He was actually Italian by citizenship. And so you've ever spoken to an Italian guy, you know that whatever they say, they say confidently. They're sure of it. Well, Paul is actually a Jew, but he did have Roman citizenship. And so maybe that's it. Maybe Paul is just a confident guy. I don't think so. I don't think that's why Luke is recording there, because we see this word parousia many other times in the New Testament. In fact, 31 other times this word is used. And it's used to describe three different things primarily. It's used to describe how Jesus spoke when he spoke. He spoke with confidence. It's used to describe how the disciples were to speak about Jesus and how they did speak about Jesus. So Jesus speaks this way. When people speak about Jesus, that's how they speak about Jesus, with confidence. And finally, it's used to tell us how we are to speak to Jesus, that we can come boldly to the throne of grace, that we can speak confidently to him. And so it's a really neat word, 31 times in the New Testament, used quite often. And earlier in the book of Acts, we find it used in Acts chapter 4, verse 13. It says, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and the they there is the Jewish leaders, the Jews, when they see the boldness of Peter and John and perceive that they were unlearned and ignorant men, so they're making fun of them. They, they, they see that these, these guys are not real bright. They're unlearned. They're ignorant. And yet they see this boldness, this clarity in their message. It says, they marveled and they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. See, they, they see the boldness. They see how these men who were unlearned and ignorant, yet even though they were in that state, and even though that's how they were perceived by the Jews, they were boldly, confidently preaching about Jesus. And then in Acts chapter 4, verse 29, it says, And now, Lord, behold their threatenings, and grant unto thy servants that with all boldness they may speak thy word. And so now the church understands the situation that Peter and John are in, and they say, they, they cry out to God, and they ask God to allow Peter and John to continue speaking and preaching with boldness. And then in verse 31, it says, When they had prayed, the, pro- the place was shaken where they were assembled together, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost, and they spake the word of God with boldness. This is supposed to be happening. It's not just Paul. It's not just his personality. This is what was happening with the apostles earlier. This is what the church was praying for would happen. And as the Holy Spirit filled people, and as he worked in people's lives, what came out was bold preaching and teaching of Jesus Christ. And so it's not just a a characteristic, it is something that we ought to do. And so he ends this way saying that that what was supposed to happen was happening. He was speaking with confidence. Confidence should characterize our witness of Christ as well. Do you know that Paul, when he wrote to the Ephesians, in chapter 6, verse 19, he said, he's asking for prayer requests, and he turns and he, he asks them for one thing for himself. So Ephesians, he's writing from Roman prison, and he says, that utterance may be given that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel. That was his prayer request for himself. So he's sitting in this Roman prison. He's writing letters asking churches to pray that he will be bold. And then Luke says, 
at the very end that he was boldly preaching and teaching the gospel. This is an answer to prayer. This is, this is how it's supposed to work. And so Christians must, number one, and this is, this is all from this word, we must speak candidly. The word that's, that's translated confidence here is translated openly, boldly, plainly, freely, and confidently throughout the New Testament. And so candidly, openly, freely, we, we must not be acting as though we, need, we have something to conceal. We're not concealing the truth. We're not making the message of Jesus palatable. We're not making him popular. Our job is just to clearly, to openly, to candidly share the truth. No concealing. We don't dress him up. We tell people who he is. There is no part of Jesus' character that you shouldn't want to share. Whether it's his love and grace and forgiveness, whether it's his holiness and his justice and his righteousness and his wrath against sin. That is Jesus. So we speak candidly. Number two, we speak clearly. We speak clearly. Not, no obscuring the meaning of things. We are not called to be a witness of the ambiguous love of God. Do you get that? I mean, you, when you listen to some Christian songs, you think, yeah, I get that God loves people, but I have no idea what that means. It feels like it's just an emotional thing, just like our love. It, it, there's no semblance of the agape love that's spoken of in the Bible that is a love of self-sacrifice. And so we are not called to just tell people, oh yeah, God is a God of love. That's wonderful. That's, I mean, that's nice, but everybody loves to hear that, isn't it? And so he didn't speak this way. He spoke clearly. He pointed to the love of God that is in Jesus Christ. And that was going to make some people angry. He said that the love of God was manifested, it's demonstrated, on the cross when Jesus died for sinners. You say, what? I mean, that, that doesn't sound as nice. Not everybody's going to like that because when they hear that, they're going to go, that means that I'm a sinner. Paul would say, yes, God, love is demonstrated in that he died to save sinful people like you and me. That's God's non-ambiguous love. That's the real love of God. Not just the, the feeling that we all like. And so it was clear. It is the love that put Jesus on the cross in the place of sinners. And far too many believers are guilty of speaking about Jesus' love and his grace and his mercy and never explaining what that means. It, love, grace, mercy, they're not mystical words. They're, they're not like these things that are out there that you just have to assign meaning to. They're real things demonstrated in real ways. And so we should speak clearly about those things. Number three, he spoke confidently with no fear of the consequences. Now, some people get this wrong. They, they get the word bold and confident and they just think that means that they should go into work and be a jerk. That they should be the know-it-all that knows everything and that they're so much better because they have the gospel and they know the truth and everybody else is just lost in, in darkness. And, and even as I say that, you go, yeah, well, okay, there's, there's a portion of that that is true. I mean, as a believer, I've, God has shown me truth in his grace. And there are people that are lost in darkness. But saying that we're supposed to speak confidently doesn't mean act like a know-it-all, act like you're better than everybody, be a jerk to everybody. That's not what he's saying. There's a big difference between arrogance and confidence because when you're being arrogant like that, you are actually thinking of yourself and who you are and what you've accomplished and, and how wonderful it is that you know truth compared to other people. Confidence is confident in Jesus, in what he's done, and that's it. And that part of that confidence is realizing that you are nothing. 
you can't be confident in the gospel until you know that the gospel means that, that you're a sinful person that has nothing good in themselves, right? And so we speak confidently. If you are thinking about yourself when you share the gospel, you are not ready to share it. And so if your response to the gospel and, and your presentation of the gospel is arrogant or fearful, when you're fearful, the truth is, I mean, I don't like this because I'm fearful. I get fearful sometimes. But when I'm being fearful, I'm thinking about me. Thinking about how people are going to respond to me. Whether they're going to still respect me. How they'll think about me. If it produces fear or arrogance when we go to share the gospel, then we are not ready to share it. We share the gospel because we love God and because we believe that this is truth. And those things, they have nothing to do with you. So, if concern for our popularity or well-being supersedes our love for God and our concern for the truth, we are not ready. Four words that will change your life. Fear God, not men. If we would do that when we share the gospel, it would change how we share it. Speak the gospel candidly, clearly, and confidently. And, and, and all those things are wrapped up in that word, parakletos. He was confidently sharing the gospel. The second thing it says in the very last word of the book of Acts is akalutos. It's translated here, no man forbidding him. It literally means unhinderedly or freely. What is amazing about this is when we do consider Paul's situation, it seems like he's hindered, right? There's so many things hindering him. A Roman prisoner awaiting a trial that could end in certain death doesn't seem like an unhindered situation. In fact, in the realm of hindrances, in the realm of excuses, I think Paul could have had a lot of them. He could have used his state to justify taking it easy, to justify keeping his mouth closed, to justify retirement. I mean, look at all Paul has been through. At least finally he's in his house. He can't go outside. He can't do all the things he did before. So he might as well now just grab a sofa, kick back, relax, and hang out with the guard. Wait for his death. You can justify it. But that's not what Paul did. And so because that's not how Paul responded, then God continued to use him. See, God never puts you in a situation where you can't do what he told you to do. And so even though our circumstances, even though our, our, when we physically look at where we're at, we might say, there's hindrances, there's reasons that I can't do what God has called me to do. God says, no, this is what I've called you to do, so just do it, and I'll provide a way. And we see this time, this two years of, Jesus, of Paul's life, are two of the most profitable years of his entire life. Four books in the New Testament from that. His opportunity to share the gospel with the Jewish leaders in Rome and then to, to other people. It says people came to him all the time. So Paul couldn't go to people, so what did God do? God got, brought people to him. See, God worked it out, but God worked it out because Paul was just going to go, and he was going to go. He was going to be obedient. He was going to do what he was supposed to do, no matter his circumstances. That's why he can say that he was without hindrance. Because in the realm of things, in the big picture, they thought they were hindering him, and they weren't. He was without hindrance because he was still being obedient. This final scene, as we look at the book of Acts, was not an accident. He didn't end this way because he ran out of scroll room. It's not like we lost the second book of Acts. Luke ended this way on purpose. We see Paul hindered in every way, humanly speaking. And that has been the church from its inception. Hindered in every way, humanly speaking. And we see 
the Holy Spirit empowering him to do exactly the message that we are all called to do. That the disciples at the very beginning, to take the word, to preach the word to Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost part of the earth. And that is exactly what he's doing. He's telling what Jesus did, what he taught. He's talking about the kingdom and things that concern Jesus. Paul is doing exactly what we find the entire book of Acts, the whole trajectory of Acts, doing. We get to this end of the book of Acts, and I think we find ourselves with the decision to make. You survey Paul. You read what he wrote to Timothy. Let me read 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8. He says, Remember that Jesus Christ, the seed of David, was raised from the dead according to my gospel, wherein I suffer trouble as an evildoer, even unto bonds, but the word of God is not bound. We see him write that right before he dies. And we see how he's in all of these circumstances, and yet he's doing what God called him to do. And I think it makes us make a decision. It puts us in this position of saying, he's stopped. Luke ended here because the, the message goes on. Because it's not the end of Paul's story is the end of the story. The story is God empowering his people to take the gospel to the world. That's the whole story. And this is just a small portion of it where we get like an example of how this is supposed to happen. And so now we find ourselves 2,000 years later almost in a situation where we have to go, will I be the guy who makes the excuses, who is fearful, who will not open my mouth, or will I be the guy who, despite my circumstances, unhinderedly goes out and shares the gospel? Will I be the guy who confidently and clearly and candidly shares the gospel with people? We have to make that decision for ourselves. I understand that your voice, that my voice, is just a drop in the bucket, right? I mean, there's millions of people on the earth. What can we do? Billions of people. Um, what, what are we going to do? But can I tell you something? The drop in the bucket that our voice is, that your voice is at your work, with your family, with your coworkers, with your friends, with your teammates, with your students, our voice is little, but our drop in the bucket will have eternal rings for eternity the people we speak to will be affected this church I mean, we are a family and and as each of us make this decision to say i am going to go out and unhinderedly and confidently preach the gospel it changes our church it, it, it brings people into the family eternally it changes things and so for us, I mean, what are, what are we going to be? Are we going to be the guy that gets to the end of our life and just wishes we could do it again because we did it all wrong? Or are we going to live the life that Paul lived so at the end of his life he can say, I finished my race. I ran my course. I did what God called me to do. And henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness. Someday I get to hear my Lord say, good and faithful servant. I mean, we got this one life to live. So will we, with our words in our life, preach and teach about Jesus clearly and confidently? Will we point people to the only Savior who died for them to save them from eternal destruction and offers them eternal life with him? I think that's something worth living for. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this conclusion to the book of Acts. Lord, I thank you for the example of the Apostle Paul. And God, I thank you that in his example and in what he accomplished, what we see behind it all is your power and your ability to take a man who was 
uh, feeble, who was um, weak, who was flawed, who was sinful, who was at one point persecuting the church, and to use him as your tool to reach so many people. And God, I pray that instead of us looking at Paul and lifting him up as a hero, as an untouchable person, that we would see instead the God behind his power who enabled him to live a life completely surrendered to you, to share the gospel unhinderedly throughout the world. Lord, I pray that we would set aside our circumstances, uh, set aside our fears, set aside our arrogance, and give the gospel as you've called us to, to the people around us. We love you, Father. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.